Hey everyone, this is Augustus Cho. Welcome to part three of our previous episode. You're listening to Augustus Cho's Fry It Up podcast on the Nana Music Network. Because uh, we don't take a break, I, I pretty much stop to talk to the audience to give the drummer time enough to get a drink or get his catch his breath. I mean, it, most most bands play an hour and take a 30-minute break, which I feel are real show killers. We don't do that. We play straight through four hours. So I use the humor and the cutting up with the crowd as an opportunity for everybody to catch their breath. And you do a very good job doing that. And uh, I see it happening and you do it methodically, but with a sense of humor and in a subtle way that, you know, people don't realize what you're, what you're doing behind the scene for the other people, right? Well, they don't realize why I'm doing it because my method is to not just sit up there and, and tell random jokes uh, a la Red Fox or <laughs> Chris Rock. I always incorporate the audience in what I'm talking about. That keeps them interested. Um, you know, if 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 I'm in if I'm in um, Charlotte, I talk about things that relate that people from Charlotte relate to. You know, I'll talk about um, Charlotte Second Ward, the old black high school down there. It, you know, people in their 60s, they resonate to that conversation. Well, I talk about West Charlotte or I talk about South Mick or Miles Park. Um, or, you know, you can just pick the city that I, you know, I just about know something about that town. And, you know, that's what I like to Oh, yeah. And then when you're in Cary, you pick on Cary. There you go. There you go. No need, no need to talk about Milwaukee if you're in Cary. You know. That's right. You said earlier that uh, you're the hardest working band. And that's what I noticed about uh, Liquid Place the first time I saw you guys play. And like you said, typical scenario is if the band starts at uh, 6 o'clock, uh, they'll play maybe an hour and 20 minutes. They'll take a break for 30 minutes. And then when they come back, they finish out with an hour. But in your case, with liquid pleasure, there is no break in terms of the audience because you play straight through. That you have uh, two different shows almost, completely different. But right. what, I was, what I first wanted to recognize was that there is no other band that plays three hours straight through like you guys do. Now, you have a format. So tell us about the format with the ladies and et cetera, or what you do in the beginning. Well, but let me, let me even pile on top of what you just said. 90% of the bands that are playing today are not really playing. They are tracking. The music is pre-recorded. So all of a sudden, you go out to see a live band now, and you take 
five white guys from West Virginia with banjos all of a sudden doing Snoop Dogg because everything is pre-recorded. It, it's what in the business we call tracking. It's a track act. They're up there moving their, their mouth and they have ways that they can sing live to the track. It's, it's a glorified way of um, doing karaoke in a way. And I've always said that when, when the mass audience finds out that they're paying fifteen, twenty thousand $20,000 for a band that's not really playing, it's going to be an uproar about that. We play 100% live. Oh, yeah. And the day that we start tracking will be the day I no longer perform. Um, that would be no fun to me. To, to do the tracker thing. And I don't want to criticize. Everybody got the right to do their business the way they want to do it. No criticism from me. I'm, I'm just stating the fact that we play 100% live of that four hours. And I see it. Every time I go, yeah. I see it. Now, yeah. the way your band usually entertain right. is that you have your six or seven uh, basic members that play right. together and then yeah. at a bigger events you also bring in horns right very nice right and then regardless on the second half of the show you bring on the ladies yes like three like pointer sisters and that sort of thing and it, it has a different personality altogether from what you what the, what you guys do in, in the first half of the show so talk to us about that well we we were like most bands, we didn't want women around us. You know, we were we were traveling in the 70s. We wanted to go somewhere, play, and meet women. We didn't want to bring any women. <laughs> so I didn't say that. You said that. I said that. That was the 70s. But as we went on, um, the music changed. And I think Donna Summer got hot. And then all of a sudden, you got these other groups with females in them. And... You know, it's very difficult for me to sing Aretha Franklin. <laughs> really? So, yeah. <laughs> as talented so, as you are. <laughs> yeah, man. It's kind of hard. And I don't look good in a wig or dress. So we had to start bringing uh, the ladies in. But just like the criteria we use to pick the guys, we use the same thing for the ladies. You just cannot bring anybody around in an organization like Liquid Pleasure. You just can't do it. So we ruled out all the girls that smoked. We didn't want them around us. Um, it helped that Melvin was married to Gwen um, and she's as talented as anybody on earth. Um, and we brought the girls in and you, you get all sorts of logistical problems when you bring women into a, a, a group. And we had to work our way through that. And that was difficult during the 80s. I can understand that. Now, you yeah. mentioned Gwen. That's uh, Melvin Farrington's wife. Yep. And uh, she's maybe five foot one, but a dynamite. She may be five foot one in some stacked <laughs> shoes, but she four foot something, you know. Well, I, I do want, you know. <laughs> I do duets with her, and I know I had to look down, and all, you know. 
<laughs> I mean, she's a stick of dynamite when she comes on stage. And oh, yeah. All she goes all over that crowd, and she's never met a stranger. And, yeah. you know, I, you know, I, I just asked her, how does it feel to be loved by everybody everywhere you go? <laughs> you well, you should know that. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> now, uh, so your idea in terms of the model is that the first half, the guys do their thing with Tony right. and uh, Troy, Troy and, and everybody right. else doing their thing. And you also sing. Which is yeah, and Bradshaw sings. Charles is singing now, too. Okay, great. Yeah, Charles, is, Charles we, we, you know, we, he, he throws, he does some Motown for us. Yeah. Okay. And then without skipping a beat, you guys sort of take a backstage. And then the ladies come in. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the, the drummer's still playing and everybody else is still playing. Yeah. And the ladies come into the stage and take over pretty much. They do. And uh, I like that. But the concept is, you know, some of my greatest heroes were Walt Disney and P.T. Barnum. Um, why is that? Tell us why. Walt Disney, if you think about it, was the first person that created something that the entire family could enjoy at the same time. My great grandmother, who was born in 1884, she tell me that when her father would take her who was born in 1850-something, take her to the carnival. The carnivals were designed for parents standing there watching kids on these little things. The, the role of the parents was to watch the kids play and stuff. Walt Disney created that Disneyland thing where everybody was riding the rides together. I want the Liquid Pleasures show to be like that, where everybody is participating in the show. Everybody's dancing and having fun. And in order to do that, you got to keep hitting people with different things so that halfway through the show, people sitting there saying, golly, I don't want to leave because I don't know what they're going to do next. What are they, they going to bring out next? You know, so... That's kind of the concept with the girls. I mean, no one, no other bands does that. They just play straight through their sets, whatever, their repertoire. But in your case, it's like watching two different shows. Well, you got, you got to have the right people. I mean, that goes for any business. you got to have the right people. Uh, I talk to a lot of band leaders, and a lot of them have the same setup, but they have different people. And everybody's not on the same page in a band. A lot of bands that you go to see, you don't get that liquid pleasure feeling because half of the people in that band are thinking that they're just doing that temporarily before they get their big break in Hollywood. You know, oh, I'm just in this band for now. People in my band realize this is what they're going to be doing for a living, for their life. And it, it, it sends out a different vibe to the audience. Yes, yes, yes. And they're very good at doing that. Oh, yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, when I first saw you guys do the whole production, it's like, damn, I've, they, this is a 
hard working band. <laughs> you know, and what what my thought was initially was, is it because they feel like they have to do this to compensate for uh, being an African-American band? Or is this something that they, they're throwing out there as a model? You know, you know what I'm talking about? Because oftentimes the minorities have to do better than, you know, everybody else, that sort of thing. Well, um, I think you understand that concept, but I just think it's, it's more the quality of the product that we want to present. I want to be, I don't want to make the most money. I, I want to have the best product for the money. I, that's, that's how I want everybody to look upon us. I could make more money, but I want to give a good product for a fair price. Well, can't argue with that. And uh, I would say it's pretty much succeeding. Um, how do you determine, because in some of the events, like when you were playing in carry at the uh, Triangle Beer Distribution, when you were on kind of a stage with a, you know, pillars on in front of you, separating us from the, uh, you guys, Mm, yeah. You had your basic six or so. In other places, you bring in the horns. So what, right. what determines that in terms of uh, how you approach it? Well, that particular night you were there, uh, we've got nine horns that we use across the country. Um, because, you mean at Fenton? Well, only in they do horns. Um, but, you know, when I'm in Houston, I use a Houston horn section of that. Just so happens six of our nine horn players went in carry that day, and they all wanted to play because their families wanted to come out. So we use all six of them. And sometimes people don't even pay for the horns. I just bring them. You know, it's extra money to bring them in, fly them in, that type of thing. But sometimes I bring them in because I try to always do what's good for the show. Okay. Is that determined by location or venue or? Yeah, I got a, I, I got a horn session in Houston. When we play in Texas, they cover Dallas, San Antonio. So uh, I got a horn session in Philadelphia. I got the Greensboro horns. Economically, I had to have it set up that way because <laughs> Uh, flying people in is very expensive and it could price you out of certain jobs. So my Greensboro horns, if I'm playing in Richmond, they can drive to Greensboro and it's very much lower than flying in the, the Philly guys. So basically uh, it's based on question of economics. It's economics, yeah. Okay, okay. All right. Um, Miss uh, Gwendolyn Farrington. You've known her a long time, too. Yeah, I knew Gwen before she married Mary Mellon. And she was, you know, she was um, a heck of a singer in eighth grade. In eighth grade, she was a heck of a singer. And um, But she lived over in Durham, and, you know, I'd see her occasionally. And I was actually shocked when Melvin told me, because Melvin was the kind of guy, he was a man of few words. And I didn't even know Melvin was dating Gwen. <laughs> uh, he just walked in the office one day and said, he said, what are you doing two weeks from Sunday? I said, I don't know what's up. He said, um, I need you to stand beside me, which was our code about getting married. And I said, okay, I'm going to be there. I said, by the way, who you, who, who you marrying? He said, uh, 
I'm marrying Gwen Fowler. I said, what? I didn't even know he was dating Gwen. This is somebody I've been with every day. I never knew he was dating Gwen. I found out two weeks before he got married that that's who he was marrying. <laughs> that's, that's funny because obviously Melvin had a, a, another life that you didn't know about. Yeah, yeah, he, he must he he must have been a midnight roller. <laughs> That's funny, man. And we will be right back after this important message. Remember, with liquid pleasure, the more you drink, the better we sound. I want to thank Kenny Mann and Liquid Pleasure for the outstanding music. You said earlier that uh, your band in Chapel Hill back in the mid-60s was the first integrated band because you integrated some, uh, some of the white musicians. My yeah. question is, uh, was that to make a social statement or would, is it that they were the best in, uh, persons to play those instruments? Well, it, I could give you five different answers but I'm gonna give you two good ones. They had the instruments because a lot of the guys in our neighborhood couldn't afford the instruments. And those two cats, Art Webb and David Hadney could really play. They could really play. Um, I can hear David Hackney playing Sex Machine right now. And you would think it, it was right off of the record. I mean, and David, never hesitated we were going around all of these black clubs and stuff he walked in and he was so soulful that people loved him and uh he's one of my good friends to this day how about that yeah um embers when they back you know when they started they said they had the best uh sax player he, he happened to be black at that time and you know he couldn't even get into hotels where they were staying so the Members had to say if they don't if they don't go in if he doesn't go in then we don't go in that sort of thing. So they were trying to do their thing to try to uh, I guess integrate the musicians as well at the time. Well, I I never saw the Embers the integrated version of the Embers. The first time I saw the Embers was at Granville Towers when we started. And the thing I noticed about them was they had some really really nice equipment, the best that I had ever seen. And they had red, white, and blue amps lying all behind the state. And I had never seen anything like that. This was 1966. So that was the first time. So I don't know who was in that band because I was too busy looking at the equipment. <laughs> all right, let's talk about something a little bit more sensitive. Uh, okay. This is something that I've always wondered, and maybe uh, you can answer it. In the present situation, uh, most of the uh, beach music bands are pretty much white. But irony is that R&B and, and blues and soul music are often performed initially on radio and, and performances by African-Americans. Do you see kind of any kind of a contradictory or some kind of a hypocritical situation? Well, I think a lot of people were just confused about what beach music is or was. 
There was there's nothing special about beach music that makes it different. And people confuse beach music with surf music. Surf music, the beach boys and stuff, that's a California thing. All beach music was was regular black soul music that white kids were dancing to in the 60s who were anti-Beatles, anti-British invasion. Uh, all of those bands, um, the Rolling Stones and um, the Beatles, um, the Dave Clark Five, all of those British bands start coming over here. And there was a group of white kids in the South who were still wanting to dance to Wilson Pickett and all of that. So there was, at this particular, the majority of black kids and a lot of a segment of white kids were dancing to the same music, Soul Man, um, uh, Mustang Sally, Midnight Hour. Uh, that's soul music, but it was called beach music because the kids would go down to the beach and listen to that music on the beach. That's the only connection with beach. And this Beach Boy stuff, that was surf music, not beach music. That's a good way to put it. Does it bother you that uh, in the present condition, all the beach music bands pretty much have not been integrated? Does that bother you in any way? Well, being that I'm, I'm it, you know, and I'm, you know, I, I don't want to, because I'm friends with so many of them. Sure. Um. You know, the band of Oz, David Hicks, his kid and my kid were in East Carolina together. Um, my son played football down there and his his daughter was down there and we ended up on the same stage at the same time with both of our kids there. Hicks and I have been friends uh, for years. Um, it doesn't bother me because you are friends with who you are friends with. Um, Hicks is good enough to play in my band, but he could get his own band. He's got his own band. <laughs> so why would he come in in Liquid Pleasure? Or, or why would I go in a band of ours? I, you know, but we're still friends, and I'm friends with a lot of beach bands. So. Sure. One, you know, Steve Owens and the Summertime band? Yeah. One of the reasons I enjoyed watching them is because they had an a African-American drummer. Right, but uh, recently, I guess because of the COVID situation, Steve uh, doesn't perform anymore. So that combination no longer exists, as mm -hmm. far as I know. Yeah. But from my perspective, you know, I go to all these events, and I see what I see, and it kind of it makes me wonder, you know, why if I go to Liquid Pleasure, it's all African American. If I go see other bands, it's all whites. So it's like, damn, you know, I don't know if they're making a statement subtly or it just happens to be that way. Just an I observation just, that I have, you know? I just think it happens to be that way because um, you either can play or you can't. And it depends on your philosophy. Um, uh, the thing that was prominent when, when we were growing up, what we saw the most, the band would say they were integrated but they were more like Tower Power. They the the whole band was white, and the lead singer was black. 
that's what was happening here around here. I did I did not call that really true integration. Okay. All right, we'll, we'll leave it at that. And, uh, you know, thanks for sharing those, that thought. Uh, mm-hmm. You attended Chapel Hill High School for a year, right? One year? One year. And then you yeah. bolted to Laurenburg Institute, right? That's where I went, man. That was my heaviest musical influence there. How so? Mr. Frank McDuffie, uh, the headmaster at that school, a lot of people looked at Laurenburg because of the, af- the athletics, the basketball players, the Charlie Scotts, and the all the basketball legends, Jimmy, um, Jimmy Walker and Charlie Davis and Earl Manigault and all of them. But what Mr. Matt Duffy loved the most was that band. I got turned down at Longburg at first because I was going as a football player. And Howard Lee, who was mayor here, his wife, Mrs. Lee, called back two days later and said, you know, he plays an instrument. So I was on my way to Lomberg after that. Um, two or three, you know, in a few months, I was down there in the marching band and on the football team. But, but Mr. McDuffie was a heavy influence musically um, with me. He was also... It was also a classmate of Dizzy Gillespie who graduated from my high school, Long Branch Institute. Um, so it, it, it was very, a lot of people don't know that about that school. Their music program was, was uh, pretty good. Now you say you played in the marching band. Uh, what did you play? You couldn't have been a keyboard, right? Sax. I'm sax is what I was trained on. You miss it? No. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want nothing in my mouth that long, but my tongue and a sandwich. That's all. <laughs> okay. Does Laurenburg uh, Institute still exist today? Well, the buildings are down there, but um, they got into a little basketball trouble down there. And um, and the NCAA no longer would take the transcript scripts down there. They had too many good basketball players coming out of there. So once they stop taking your transcripts, the school doesn't stand a chance. I understand. Yeah. And then you you moved on to uh, Barbara Scotia College, right? For your I went, there, college. I went there for two years during my Confucius um, part of my life. Went there <laughs> for two years. They were they were going to start up a football team. They never did. So I left and um, went to Central for about half a semester and um, found out what Mr. McDuffie told me my senior year, that I was going to go a lot further with my music than football. There was some prophecy in what he said. (laughs) Well, I'm glad that came true because uh, it's hard to imagine liquid pleasure without you. So that's... that's Yeah, well... Well, I think they still would have been good, but they would have been just got, I don't think they would have been separated from the whole maze of great bands. I think about it now. I think I can think of probably 30 bands that are just musically just phenomenal. Really? But I would have trouble making up my mind which one I would go see. Because 
They're great, they're great, they're great. They're great, but you can do that all day long and you, you're gonna go to the one that you say, they're great, they're, oh, that one's different. You're gonna go to the different one. Absolutely. So That's true. So remember Soul Dynamics? I remember the Soul Dynamics. <laughs> Tell us about it. Soul Dynamics was when I moved out for instrument, my uh, Melon's cousin, we had another cousin, Daryl, Daryl Mason, Earl Bonham, and Hugh Hunter, and we became more of a four tops type. We started to front the band. This was in junior high school, so we weren't playing instruments. We were more of a, a front group, sort of like the four tops. Thing. Did you enjoy it? I loved it. I loved it, but you know, we weren't. Then, then we weren't really had the choreography that we needed um, to do that. Um, so we we pretty much, uh, you know, we didn't realize how much choreography you had to have to be a, a, a front group, you know, singing group like that. And you said about Earl Bynum that he was ahead of his time in terms of blending vocals and that sort of thing? Earl Bynum? Yeah. Oh, my. Every band needs an Earl Bynum. Whoa, boy. Earl Bynum makes Earl Bynum makes the harmony right. What was his training? That was he? Did he have any training, or did he have a good ear? Or, or I don't remember Earl having any training. I mean, he was just he was just a natural, but people knew how to sing and stuff back then. Um, and then during the summertime. We would get behind Hargrave Center. We stay up all night long singing, um, just in out by the swimming pool. You know, we stayed up all night long, four or five in the morning. That's how you polish it up, I, I guess. Your talents. Well, you get it. you get you get to know each other. Melvin Melvin wasn't the greatest singer, but we knew each other. And Melvin would fall in there at the right spot. He would never oversing. Um, he, he had the right blend. And that's real important when you sing them. How about that? How long did the uh, dynamics last? Oh, God. They, last, they lasted until Till I, I, till I went off to college, I would say 70, 72 was about the end of the dynamics, soul dynamics. So between the uh, soul dynamics and your, uh, having your younger, you know, older band, what right. was the best experience? What did you get out of it before you became a liquid pledge? Well, we... I started to learn what I liked and didn't like. You know, Earl Earl Bynum smoked cigarettes. And um, it kind of let me know I didn't really like cigarettes, didn't want to be around them. Um, I learned that we were going to have to be more diverse in our music. We just couldn't sing what we wanted to sing. We were going to have to sing some stuff that people wanted us to sing, and that's a big difference. You also uh, wrote a song, right? 
I wrote several songs. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And uh, you want to talk about that or? Sure. I, you know, I that's what got me to Casablanca. Uh, I wrote a song, uh, a ballad called "If I Had My Way," and um, Casablanca Records was um, interested in that. And Hugh and I collaborated on a song called When It's Over. So Casablanca were kind of digging that, but they wanted to modernize it and wanted to rewritten and all, all of that. So um, are you a melody guy first or what comes to you first? Pick a line. He would he would throw me a line and I'd roll with it. You know. Hugh, Hugh came in one day and said, he just flopped down in the office and said, when it's over, baby. I said, well, he said, when it's over, baby. And I just, you know, within about 30 minutes, I was doing, when it's over, I'll still love you. I mean, we just, we just kind of flowed like that. He, he was the best throw a line guy. Yeah, like a phrase, eh? and then you go with it. You get the phrase, I could go with it. You know? yeah, yeah. yeah, you open for some uh, famous bands, right? Oh yeah, yeah. So some famous bands open for us. Yes, yeah, tell us. Well, we go to play in Atlanta one night. And we walk out and we said, "Who's the opening act?" I said, "A Mars Day in the Time." <laughs> for us, what in the world's going on? And that I mean, it was the most surreal moment of my life. Sharing the dressing room. Usually, when we work with the Temptations, we go out first and do our thing, and the Temptations would come on. But all of a sudden, Mars Day and the Time is getting the stage call, and we're waiting for them to finish this set before we go on. That's mind blowing at that time, wasn't it? Um, I never will forget that. I took <laughs> pictures. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just for, uh, for people that may not be familiar with Mars Day and the Time. That was uh, in Purple Rain, and that group was the, uh, I guess, the opponent or antagonist of uh, Prince. Oh, yeah, the time, yeah. Yeah, that movie. Yeah, yeah. How about Spinners, man? We did the Spinners a couple of times. We did Spinners in Houston. Um, we we opened for them. Um, um not the friendliest people I ever met, but they... Uh, oh, really? Yeah. Oh, that's disappointing. Well, I think they they were using our equipment and we were missing a couple of keyboards that they needed. And I probably would have gotten a little upset about that too, so... Uh, yeah, I see. Yeah. Still, still love the music. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, definitely. And you actually recorded an album along the way in 1981. 1981, when I came back from Casablanca, Casablanca wanted me to be a staff writer as I you know, And I wasn't feeling that because when I flew to L.A., I thought, this is my big break. You know, it was a major disappointment. So when I got back, we found a guy that would let us record uh, our own songs for a piece, of, a piece of the pie, you know. Yeah. So 
he he paid for us to record in his studio and uh, we put it out and we you know we did real well in the black in the black belt for about about a month with some of those songs that's great i'm going to uh, list some names and you tell me you know what's going on chuck berry Eddie Floyd, Ben E. King, Whitney Houston, the Four Tops. What's going on there? All right. Um, Ben E. King, we played with Ben E. King twice. I want to say once in Atlanta. um, And once in Maryland. Chuck Berry, we played with in uh, Washington, D.C., and Jacksonville, Florida, and that, that yeah, that, that was amazing because you know I had never seen anybody get paid in cash before like that. <laughs> what about the Queen of Soul, Aretha Franklin? Well, I Aretha Franklin, um, let me tell you, was was not the easiest to work with because she wouldn't let you. I mean, because what? She wouldn't let, she made everybody turn the uh, air conditioning off. Okay. You know, something, did something to a voice or something. So you sitting around waiting for them to sound check and you got, it's you sitting over there sweating. How about that? How about Temptations? Temptations, I'm still mad with them because we <laughs> had all the food in the dressing room. They wouldn't let us eat until the Temptations ate. So about 15 minutes before we were supposed to go home, Temptations walked walked in. They they had already went to eat at some local soul food restaurant, Mama Dips, where you know I'm sitting now. They they went to eat at Mama Dips. We didn't get anything to eat because they told us we couldn't touch the food until the Temptations ate. So still, still mad with with Otis Williams for that. <laughs> okay. Uh, you, you eventually realized that you really don't enjoy composing, that sort of thing. You actually wanted to be more of a uh, performer, right? Correct. When did you realize that? When I saw how root, ruthless the music business was and is, um, it, going to Hollywood was one of the greatest things that ever happened to me because... I could see the music business was a cutthroat business and the amount of people that I thought were stars were absolutely broke. They didn't really have any money. And all my perceptions of that life were blown away. So I got, I got, I found out the real deal, and I couldn't get back to North Carolina quick enough. Really? Yeah. So you realize that uh, you're an East Coast guy, huh? Well, I, I we work the West Coast now, but anybody that that um, goes out to Hollywood, that goes out to Hollywood, they better have their stuff really together because you you facing starvation. You're not careful. <laughs> 